Welcome to today's episode of the LangFM uh, podcast. This episode is not about interpreting and not really about translation, maybe a little bit later on. Um, I have a guest today who uh, joins us from Brussels, but actually comes from much further away, and we'll explore that in a moment. Welcome, uh, Matthew Laurie, to the show. How are you? I'm um, great. Thanks for having me. You are joining us from the offices of Euractive today. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing some part-time work with them, so uh, they gave me a little bit of time to step into a corner. It's a very difficult day today. I don't know when people are going to listen to this, but this is the day that uh, Brussels was bombed at both the airport and just down the road here at Malbec. So it's a pretty strange atmosphere right now. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm in a little corner at Euractive right now. Yeah, it is, it is very much a, a weird day today, 22nd of um, March, and uh, a lot of upheaval in the city, but we'll try to focus on the topic at hand. Sure. So maybe to uh, start the podcast, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Matthew? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I'm Australian, for a start, a British Australian, and uh, I turned up in Brussels back in the beginning of 1991 as a, as a freelance science journalist. I was backpacking around Europe, and uh, I sort of just stayed because I found myself writing about the, uh, the uh, research programs, the early research programs of the EU. And I've been here ever since, really. I did, I did jump back to Australia for one year during the dot-com because um, I started building websites in 1995. And, uh, you know, I've had a few successes in that front. I've been building websites since then and doing online communication strategy, general communication strategy, innovation strategy, and that sort of thing, um, mainly around the EU institutions. But uh, I also do some work with private clients. And I'm, as I mentioned before, I'm doing a bit of work uh, on media innovation at Euractive. So that's what I'm doing right now. Okay. So your professional background is basically in, in, in journalism or more in, in technology? or I, made, I did a degree in, in theoretical physics. <laughs> that is useful. Wow, okay. <laughs> that is useful to what I do now. Ah, well, who knows? I don't know. Well, it's part of what I did. Um, but from, from that science degree, and you know, I realized during that degree that I was never going to become the next Richard Feynman or anything. So uh, I always liked writing. So I became a science journalist. But not an officially trained journalist. I just became a science journalist because I could write about science. Because you know what you were talking about. Well, it helps. But you know, yeah. being a science journalist is, a, is its own toolkit. You sort of, obviously, I could I could write about physics a bit more easily than I could write about biology. But you know, a science journalist is, it's a particular type of journalism, and it's all about understanding how to how to ask the right questions and then try to figure out how to explain something which is full of jargon and is understood only by insiders after many years of study. Um, that's what science communicators do. But then that transfers really easy to, easily to communicating about Europe because Europe is really important. Yeah, that was a great segue. <laughs> it was, wasn't it? And I've used yeah. I, 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 here's a Here's a tip. I've used it before. <laughs> I've actually <laughs> blogged about the, the links between, you know, writing about science and writing about Europe, communicating about science and communicating about Europe, to be more correct. Um, but yeah, because everybody knows that Europe's important, everybody knows science important. Um, nobody understands either of them unless you spent several years studying it. It's full of jargon, insider. That's exactly right. Yes. Lots of bubbles, mm. etc. So the same techniques do transfer. So I started writing about science, then European science, and then, you know, Europe. Um, and just as I can, you know, I occasionally find myself doing some science writing about uh, genetics or software security testing. I'm doing something on that right now. Um, you know, I find myself communicating sometimes about regional policy, which I have no background in regional policy. <laughs> but if you know how to ask the right questions and then explain stuff, knowing who your audience is and 
you know, knowing how you should structure it and the, the sort of content you should be using and how you should write it, then the, 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 the skills do transfer. And, um, I mean, you're probably no longer an NEU outsider because you've been, been here for so long, but um, I suppose your initial perception was one where you were intrigued and you were kind of interested and, and that was what prompted you to stay here. What, what is your general impression of the EU's development over the last decades? I mean, when, how do you perceive the, the changes that are going on, um, maybe in general or also from the point of view of technology and communication, which is, which is your uh, forte? Well, that's a big question. Um, I mean, generally, I'm really worried about the EU, and I guess everybody who thinks about it is, you know, it's uh, it, the whole thing. <laughs> Sometimes you think the whole thing could unravel. And I'm not talking yeah. about the terrorist threat at all. I'm talking about internal, you know, internal divisions. Um, you know, if things go the wrong way, the whole thing could sort of slowly unravel. And I'm really bothered by that because, you know, I may be Australian, a British Australian, but I have a Belgian wife and two Belgian kids who went, who went to Belgian schools. And so I'm, I'm a bit part of the Brussels bubble, but I'm also, you know, a Belgian resident with Belgian friends. I live in Belgium, pay Belgian taxes. Yeah. So, you know, um, I don't really relish the idea of the whole thing falling apart and, and i'm still here because i just find it from a communicator's point of view you know communicating europe has to be one of the most challenging difficult problems you could ever ask for and it's also a really worthwhile problem because the eu is fundamentally I, i'm reasonably fundamentally for the eu i think it could be reformed enormously perhaps but i'm not quite sure how sure yeah but you know it's better than what came before and one of the key problems that we have here is the lack of uh, eu public sphere, you know, EU public space. Um, and so that's a fundamental problem with, you know, with the functioning of the EU as a democracy. And uh, so that's a good problem to work on. You know, you can spend an entire lifetime on that sort of problem. It is so multifaceted. It's so complicated. There's no one solution. There are so many different solutions and there's so di many difficulties facing it. I, I guess that's why I'm still here, really, because it's a good hard problem it's what you call a wicked problem or a complex problem it's there's no it's easy science, solution yeah yeah, yeah exactly mm. there's there's no easy solution and anybody who says they've got an easy solution to this is well simplifying to the point of foolishness really and we see quite a bit of that unfortunately at the at the moment oh, you know yeah. people promising the easy solutions where there aren't any easy solutions yeah you have to always really um Deploy a lot of skepticism when you come along and you hear somebody saying, I've got the solution to this problem. It, no. You could have that in physics. You won't get that in anything more complicated than chemistry. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and politics is several orders of magnitude more complex than chemistry. Um, yeah. And uh, so you just don't have one single solution. But, you know, it's really fun to try to find a way of pushing forward one small one small part of it. So most of the time I've spent here, I've been pushing forward, you know, certain ideas and trying to help make, you know, the EU's online um, presence more understandable and more relevant and easier to understand and, and to reach. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a problem which has had several revolutions over the last 20 years. You know, it's, uh, mm. it's been re re revolutionized several times, first by the web, then web two, then social media, and it will continue to be so. Um, but I guess I'm here working at your active part-time because, you know, I'm more and more understanding the, the crucial role that the media have to play. And the fact that we don't have a European media space is really, really critical. So that's the sort of one of the focuses of uh, what I'm working on right now. 
Yeah, and I think there's the one problem that we've touched on already, which is the technicality of the of the EU. I mean, the EU in general is active in so many policy areas right now that it, it does get very complicated and it's so much more than just a single market. So that's one point. And then, of course, there's the whole aspect of the uh, multitude of languages that we have on this beautiful continent, <laughs> which makes things uh, complicated, interesting, challenging, uh, terribly complicated, depending on your point of view, I suppose. So um, for you, coming from a rather monolingual country, <laughs> I would assume, what's what's your um, take take on that? Do you see it more as a as a challenge in the positive way, or could it could it be something that just holds us back? Should we all just uh, switch to English? There, oh, I said it. God, God no! And I'm the last person who'd ever say that, simply because I'm a, you know I'm an Australian. I didn't hardly heard a foreign language spoken as I grew up in Adelaide, South yeah. Australia, and so you know I. I came to Brussels with a tiny amount of schoolboy French, which I've, I haven't improved much since then, to be honest. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I hate the idea of being, of being that guy who just, that English guy who says, who, who suggests everybody should just speak English. Now, mm. Multilingualism is one of the, well, actually, I've got a special name for multilingualism. I call it the meeting killer. Uh, whenever you're in, <laughs> oh, um, <dear. laughs> whenever you're in a, you know, a meeting talking about a website or an online communication strategy, and when multilingualism comes up, that's the end of the meeting. You won't get off that topic until you run out of time. It will oh, I see always yeah. consume everything. As a challenge for web, yeah. yeah, oh, that's, yeah that's absolutely true. Yes. Well, I mean, this is one of the most interesting projects I had. I, I did spend a few years inside the commission, and one of the more interesting projects I did then was a, an online architecture for, for Europa which allowed for feasible multilingualism within the resource constraints at the time. And, and you know, sorry, Europa being the official website of the EU or the European Commission for those uh, less in the know, maybe. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Um, no, don't worry. Uh, you're absolutely right. I fell into my own trap of talking, using jargon. Um, yeah, so exactly. And that's, a, you know, since I, that was a really interesting aspect of that project, and that was back in 2001, 2002. And since then, I've been really fascinated by multilingualism because around about the same time, I also built um, my first uh, Web 2.0 website, you know, interactive website. We didn't know to call it Web 2.0. That term only came <laughs> that term only came a couple of years later, but it was, you know, it was um, basically a, an online community of practice built around a, a European Commission. Uh, research conference where people could actually co-create the conference content. It was quite a lot of fun. People could register, create profiles, submit blog posts, comments on each other's ideas, etc., in order to figure out, you know, what they would talk about at the event. Mm. And that was great. And luckily for us, we did it in one language because <laughs> it was a research program, um, a European Commission research program in uh, innovation. Uh, sorry, information and communication technologies. And, you know, these research programs in the world of science, they, everybody does speak English. Uh, it is accepted that you can't have an international research program operating in 24 languages. Right. And, um, and that's very fortunate for science. And I would hate that lesson to be adopted by all other aspects of society and we all just go to one language because, you know, I love Europe, you know, I, I'm here for a reason. Um, a lot of people. A lot of people say, "Why are you here? Australia is fantastic." And I said, "No, I actually prefer. I actually went back to Australia, and I came back here because I prefer to live here." And one of the reasons I love it, I love the cultural diversity, and you can't divorce cultural diversity from linguistic diversity. But Absolutely. what's really interesting is that Europe should actually be the most innovative place in the world, because when 
if you've ever looked at innovation studies, you'll find that uh, one way of making a, a project team or a group of people more creative, more innovative, is to make sure that the people in the project team are diverse, men mm. and women, old and young, and also people who speak different languages come from different cultures. Because when you speak a language, and I guess you know this a lot better than I do, mate, um, <laughs> when you speak a language, it gives you a framework for tackling a problem. And there's been a lot of studies yeah. showing that people who have um, being brought up bilingual or trilingual are actually better at problem solving. So mm -hmm. why is Europe not solving its problems? We've got, we've got 28 different countries, but many, many more cultures and many languages. If we could tap that innovation potential, which is represented by all those people speaking all those different languages, if we could mm -hmm. somehow use that innovation potential, we'd be really innovative. But we're not. And that's because the same, that same diversity that gives us that innovation potential also stops the ideas traveling from one person to another because they come in different languages and so people don't understand each other. And so it's like this great untapped potential. And that's what's, what I find really interesting about advanced language technologies these days, that um, they could both allow Europe to maintain its cultural diversity and actually benefit from it and actually make, you know, use that culture, you know, sort of tap that cultural diversity to, to tackle problems in a more innovative way um, without forcing everybody to think in English. Because you don't just speak in English, you think in English. And sure. If, if yeah. we could, I don't know, if we could tap the innovation potential, I'm sure Europe could do great things. But we need to tackle the language barrier first. That's, yeah, I think and that's, that's the, the interesting problem of how you can uh, tap into that uh, potential, and I think that also pertains the, to the question of this um, European public sphere, the European demos, or whatever you want to call it, is is what we're trying to to achieve. So, I mean, apart from the multilingual environment and multicultural environment that we have in Brussels and the institutions, I mean, the the idea is also to uh, to have a, a common sphere for discussion, a, a common demos where people talk about European issues, and not only. Uh, from their national point of view, but also sort of from a European point of view. But that's exactly, I think, the, the, the difficult uh, point that we're trying to achieve. That's exactly one of the, fo one of the focuses of one of the projects I'm, I'm involved in, in, in fact, because, you know, people vote and consider an, uh, European issues from the national perspective. You know, what can my country get out of it? What, how can my country avoid this problem um, yeah. or get more money from Brussels or whatever? And, um, and we see that right now with migration, for example, yeah, exactly. and it was the same with the financial crisis and so on. It's the same so forever. And, you know, mm. um, I think it's a pipe dream to think that we'll all just become European and, and not have national politics. That would require yeah. that level of homogenization, which would, homogenization, which would be just horrifying. Mm. Uh, be a, you know, Europe would become like a cultural desert. But I can't have that. But, <laughs> um, yeah, there's got to be a, a way where people can see, perhaps in their national conversations, get the perspective from other countries, get the European angle of this discussion and see how other countries are viewing the same problem as well. Um, and so that's why it's so interesting to work, you know, in the, in, with, with media style projects because you've got these national media and um, if we can find a way of, of getting national media to uh, reflect the debates that are going on in other countries a bit more, uh, it could, it, th that could help. In, it, probably, it's probably a better way forward than simply the European Union institutions trying to become a media in their own right. 
Um, because, you know, Europol TV and other projects like that, you can see that they've tried to become a media, but, mm. you know, the media business is incredibly difficult. Um, it's not the most obvious thing in the world. And when you come at a consumer saying, here's a media brought to you by an institution, you're going to have a bit of pushback on that. Um, <laughs> a bit, yeah, yeah. <laughs> quite a bit. And, and people have got enough media. You know, there's, a, yeah. there's an awful lot of content out there. And uh, a lot of media are under enormous pressure. I mean, the media business is under an incredible strain right now. Uh, has been their, their entire business model is, is buggered, basically. Mm. And um, so, you know, asking them to asking them to create the European public sphere is it, it, they're having they're having difficulty surviving. So, you know, one can't ask too much. But I think it's still a better way forward than than trying to replace them. And I think, yeah, that was an interesting point you mentioned there, because even uh, presumably very close neighboring countries like, let's say, uh, I don't know, Germany, the Netherlands, Austria, they don't really know an awful lot about each other, I think, interestingly, and uh, not even speak of, of what Austria's take on EU affairs is, uh, as opposed to German take on EU affairs, that kind of thing. So maybe there really is a, a good point for starting there and not, not just having this is the national level, this is the EU level, but also, you know, learning more about the uh, other EU countries. But uh, my impression, at least from the media that I consume, is that uh, there's, I don't know if, if it's a lack of interest, lack of resources, or uh, whether people think that nobody is interested in that, nobody would watch that, you know, to just learn more about just neighboring countries, quite simply. Yeah, um, I mean, the We are getting a bit more of that, but it's always in the framework of crisis and catastrophe, you know. Um, the only there is more coverage of EU issues than there were, say, five years ago, but at the price of the Euro financial meltdown and because of the refugee crisis in Syria and so forth, you know, these, this is a heavy price to pay for the limited amount of extra coverage that we're currently seeing. So, mm. you know, you people know a bit more about how Hungary deals with refugees than they would have known five years ago. You know mm. what I mean? It's it, there is a bit more coverage, but there's not nearly enough to really constitute a proper you know, a proper European discussion about this. And um, it's still very much seen from that national lens. Um, and, and it's, you know, just translating content so people can see what's going on in other countries is not enough, as you said, because you don't have the context. Um, and this is extremely difficult. Like I said, this is a wicked problem. <laughs> and I know I've been fascinated sure by, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, back in 2002 when I launched that first um, sort of, online community website um, for the commission in English only. And at the same time, I was coming up with this other architecture for feasible multilingualism for web 1.0. And mm. then I started thinking, how do we put this together? How do we have online communities? Because this is one way forward. This is a very powerful way forward to, to, for, the, for the EU institutions to help, help online communities emerge of people who are interested in the same topic, but in different countries. So this mm. has to be you know, interactive spaces. Um, online communities of practice, which are multilingual. So you, you have people in Germany and Netherlands and France and Italy who all happen to be interested in, as you said, refugee man, managing refugees or helping helping uh, refugees cope. Um, mm. And you know they could learn a great deal from each other. But how do you build that sort of space which gets over the language barrier? Because it's hard enough building a Web 1.0 site in many, many languages. But when people can submit their own content and comment to other people's content 
in 24 languages. How on earth do you do that? So that's been consuming a lot of my time, well, for over 10 years now. Because uh, that's a wicked squared problem. That's great. <laughs> but I mean, there would probably be quite a few people who say, well, it's easy. You just use Google Translate. I mean, Google Translate or Bing Translate or whatever is already available on Twitter, on Facebook. Uh, I mean, it gives you uh, varying quality in, in, in the results. But uh, wouldn't that be good enough? It's not good enough. We've tested it. Um, as a matter of fact, a few years ago, I helped um, uh, in another life, I, was, I helped conceive um, sort of a multilingual strategy for this sort of thing. It was um, a commission platform for adult um, education trainers, people who are in, professionals in the field of adult education, and they, and they wanted a 24-language you know, online space. And so we came up with a very sophisticated multilingualism strategy because you need to both have – it's what you call blended translation, where, mm -hmm. you, where people may say uh, – to begin with, they may just be presented with a machine translation. And, and there's a message saying this is a machine translation. Mm. And you can actually then uh, ask people to vote, if you like, for it to be post-edited, to be improved by a human translator. And okay. so you get all these signals. You get people voting for, like, for stuff to be translated. After seeing the machine translation, they say, yeah, this looks pretty interesting. I'd like to see a human translation of that. Uh, but you also look at traffic and how many shares it gets. You get a whole bunch of different signals to be able to figure out how to deploy your human translators to improve the quality of the translation. And you can also divide a piece of content into, into parts. So the, the text in the opening paragraph, for example, gets translated and the rest does not. And then people say, well, based on that summary, I'd like mm. the rest to be translated, please. But you know, if you just say everything gets machine translated and, then, and that's it, you won't get the conversation that you want because you build these online communities of practice to, to help um, people not just discover each other's content, but to discover each other. Because behind every piece of content, there's somebody who wrote it and mm. somebody whose insights might be useful. But you need to reduce the barriers for them to discover each other. So it's, it's not just content discovery. It's, it's sort of person discovery and network yeah. forming. And um, we tried just using um, uh, you know, machine translation systems, and it, um, the result just wasn't. It wasn't good enough because these are highly technical subjects. Each community of practices is about a, to a topic which is of great interest to a small number of practitioners, people who are really into it. In this case, it was, you know, adult education. And um, machine translation is good at general stuff, but it's not good at the specialist stuff. And I think the problem is also that not all languages are equal in terms of machine translation exactly. because uh, I mean I mean the problem at least with Google Translate is that it usually works uh, with English or via English. So sometimes you know it, it goes through several <laughs> several hoops basically until it comes out in the final language that you wanted, and of course um, that can create problems. And um, it, it usually works best with, well, obviously English, then Spanish, uh, maybe German to some extent. But if you have a language like, say, Maltese or Estonian or maybe even Hungarian, I don't know, um, you, you would get far uh, worse results, I would assume. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, but, you know, this is all sounding very negative, but it is just a question of time. Um, Google Translate is, you know, it's, it's the system that it is. There are other systems out there. And the thing about these systems is that you can train them. You can feed a translation engine. Um, if you have lots of content in many languages, you can feed that content into a translation engine and it will get better. So, for example, the commission has its own machine translation 
uh, system because they've been translating content, human translating content for years and years and years, all European mm. Union law, lots of stuff translated. They've been, I, as far as I understand it, I don't know them, um, you know, they've been using this body of text to train their own system. And as a matter of fact, um, your active is, has actually um, be, been given the permission to actually experiment with this tool, MT8EC it's called, uh, within the Euractive network because Euractive has about 12 franchises around Europe and they exchange content, translate each other's content to widen and deepen their coverage and they've been testing um, this, this tool uh, over the last year or so which is um, one of the things we were uh, discussing at um, Future Media Lab a couple of months ago and they're going to be discussing this again uh, at Language Technology uh, Innovate, the conference coming up in May where I'll also be speaking about my project. So these tools are there and they're getting better and the, the news from Google is that they're really getting into deep learning. You know the same technology that um, was on show recently, AlphaGo? The, AlphaGo, yeah. yeah. So that's deep learning, machine learning based on neural networks, which was the big trend when I was at university um, and beyond into the 90s. And then it sort of fell away because people said, ah, oh, this doesn't work. It just turns out that they didn't have enough processing power. They didn't have enough data. But now they do, and AlphaGo is based on that. And um, the you know the the potential for machine translation is it's only going to get better. Uh, the key is to feed these engines with good content. And if you're trying to build up um, you're trying to build up a, I don't know uh, an online community for adult education experts. You know you need to feed the system with. Um, content about adult education in multiple languages and then mm. it will then it will be, get, get better and what things get really interesting is if you create a community like this and then it uses the machine translation engine and then members of the community correct the translation now not only is that something which you can you can engineer that into the way community is built you can reward people for doing that and you can build communities so that people are motivated to do that but one of the motivations is that when a human translator, when a human improves a machine translation, the machine can learn from those corrections and it gets better. So if you can imagine you set up a community which is, you know, uh, got lots of people from around, around the world all focusing on a particular topic and you say, you know, you can share content into this, into this community and the machine translation will make it available to everybody. And if they improve it, if they edit the, the translations, it actually improves the engine, and that benefits everyone. So you could actually have, you could actually crowdsource the training of these machine translation systems. And that's, I think, gets really interesting, because then you can end up with a different machine translation engine for every online community in Europe. Yeah, the, I think we, we're seeing the, the first fruits now of a very interesting progression because, I mean, machine translation is, is actually a very old uh, dream of uh, of engineers, I guess. And, and first they were trying to, you know, teach language rules uh, to a machine, to a computer, mm -hmm. and, and that didn't get very good results. And that's why uh, a lot of people are still uh, laughing about machine translations when maybe they shouldn't because then the next big step was, uh, I think it's called statistical machine translation. Yeah, that's the basis said, of Google yeah. Translate. That's what yeah. Google Translate is based on statistics. But I think many people are not necessarily aware of that. So the, the thing is that you feed the uh, the machine or the system a, a lot of uh, material that has already been translated by human translators, interestingly. And then the machine sort of takes that 
and and applies principles of statistics and uses that to suggest translations. And the next step now is, uh, yeah, these neural networks and an artificial intelligence where the computer can then, um, yeah, not only apply statistics, but also actually learn something and, and improve itself, which I think was also what happened with AlphaGo, so the, the AI system that beat uh, kind of the best Go player in the world mm -hmm. by uh, playing against itself uh, for a few years and then, you know, being able to beat um, the best human Go player. So it's it's very interesting to see that uh, progression now and, and bearing fruits, uh, concrete bringing concrete results. Yeah, like I said, it's only going to get better. Um, I mean, have you ever played with um, Microsoft's uh, uh, system which is built into Skype where, you know, you can speak your language, you know, words in your language into Skype, and it will recognize what you've said, translate it, and speak it out in another language to the other person on the call. And yeah, I played with it a little bit, yeah, what they call the Skype translator. That's right, yeah. yeah. What did you think of that? I mean, as a, as a, as a I shouldn't be interviewing you, I guess, but <laughs> as, a, as a professional interpreter, what did you think? What was the result well, I mean, like? In, in terms of quality, it's nowhere near good enough. But I, I must say, when they first uh, when they showed the first demo, I, I must say I was quite impressed um, because I mean, sure, it can't replace a human interpreter right now. But uh, when I saw the first demo, I was quite impressed with how far they'd come with that. And I mean, the way it works is that it basically does speech to text, so it, it listens and then transcribes that into text. Uh, does machine translation on the text. Uh, then shows the translated text because you 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 hear and you see your um, conversation partner and you also see the text uh, which is interesting so you can sort of verify um, and, and translate that uh, translates that and does and does um, text to speech so that's kind of how it works and uh, I think it's a very interesting approach and I'm very curious to see how much better it can get or if it maybe levels out at some point I'm, I'm not really sure oh, but as you said I, I suppose AI will will uh, make it much better yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it will. The, the key question is whether they can build into the system a way of people to improve it. You know, um, it's like um, uh, Elon Musk with his um, self-driving cars. Hmm. Um, the the thing about the self-driving cars is that uh, you know, obviously, a human is behind the wheel and can correct the car if the car decides to swerve off. The, the human can 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 take control and, and uh, take control of the car and correct whatever the car did autonomously. Every time a human does that, the algorithm learns. Mm. And that learning is shared from that car to all of the other cars on the road. So he's built a system which is not just a good system for driving around, but it, is, it, is, it can be trained and is being trained by the people using it. So it gets better and better and better. And that's the way these technologies advance, not just by relying on the brute force of engineering, but coupling users into the equation, into the process, so that humans can improve the system. Because they are motivated to do so, you're motivated to correct your car when it's heading towards a brick wall, um, and in the process they happen to improve the algorithm so your car won't send you towards a, a brick wall tomorrow. Uh, and everybody benefits it, so you get this massive crowd improving your system. And um, once they crack that, then, yeah, I, I would expect to see a lot of progress in the next five years. You should read an article with the guy who invented this neural network, so I'll tweet it to you later. Um, sure, I'll put it in the show notes, yeah, so yeah. everybody can read it. Cool, I'll, do, I'll, I'll send it to you later. 
What I found most amazing, uh, just to wrap the, this thing off then for um, the, the cars, is that uh, the Tesla I mean, wasn't wasn't marketed as an autonomous car. It was marketed as, a, as an electric car with an electric uh, engine. And then uh, just by flipping a switch, they updated the software and suddenly the car was able to steer itself, which I found quite yep. uh, quite amazing. And, it, really and it's software amazing. that learns from the, from the human driver and then updates all of the software. So uh, the only risk I think here is where somebody learns to hack into it, but that's a completely different question. Yeah, which, by the way, has already happened um, because I think the Tesla software uses an outdated browser. So oh, no, they found a loophole Internet already. Explorer. <laughs> no, but it's, it's kind of an old version of, of uh, WebKit, yeah. But uh, <laughs> I wanted to get back to the um, LT conference because you mentioned that earlier oh, yeah. and I was kind of following that. Um, can you tell us, first of all, a little bit about what the conference is? I mean, it's, it's largely about language technology, but uh, maybe you know a little bit more about that. Well, yeah, the, I guess the name, the full name, Language Technology Innovate Conference, tells you what it's about. Um, but they've got a particular content, so a particular conference structure where people come forward with things like a buyer's challenge, like, you know, I've, I, I've got this problem and I challenge the industry to find me a solution. And so I've got one of the buyer's challenges for my project, a hashtag platform. And so I, I go, you know, I, I basically answered a call for proposals saying, here's a problem that I'd like to I'd like to solve. I've got an idea of how to sell it, or how to solve it, but I need the technology. And um, so the organizers are currently sort of pitching this idea to all of the technology suppliers who are coming to the conference and they're trying to match us up. Mm. And I'm speaking on the second day about that, and hopefully there'll be a workshop with a few technology suppliers and we'll have a nice open discussion about this. And a few hours, I think just, bef just before me and in the same room, uh, some colleagues at Euractive are going to be talking about Crosslingual, which is a project which they've been involving for many years. And it's again, it's um, it's. I don't think it's. I don't think they've got a buyer's challenge. They've got them. They're a bit more advanced. A lot more advanced. Um, <laughs> they've got a different sort of conference item type, um, where they've got a very clear vision and they're trying to recruit more people to join it. And in fact, um, you know, there'll be. I think sometime in the next couple of weeks that will announce it formally so I can I can say it now um, you know as a media they're they're actually going to be issuing their own sort of call for proposals for other European media to join them in building a pan-european media network where we integrate machine translation into a sort of a peer-to-peer -peer network so that the media on the platform can share each other's content using machine translation and semantic analysis and things like that we were talking about this at some um, future media lab so I'll send you the link, uh, you put it in the show notes. So right. basically there are, there are two really interesting projects I'm involved with um, at LT Innovate uh, this, uh, this May. And um, yeah, they, they sh they're both fascinating. And what's really interesting is they use exactly the same technologies but completely different ways, in utterly and completely different ways. Um, so go figure. There's a lot you can do once you put a few di different technologies together. You get a lot of different combinations. And, and can you uh, describe a little bit your bias challenge, or yeah. do, will that have to be kept secret no, until the conference? No, no, no. no. I've already okay. written a blog post about it. Um, I, you know, I, I, I published the, the challenge that I put into the call for proposals when they approved it. So, yeah, okay, it, it's it's a little bit – we've already touched upon it, actually. I snuck it in there. Um, <laughs> it's the idea of building a platform where people could form an online community, and it's specifically an online community for – people who are interested in a particular topic um, 
and want to bring people together in different countries speaking different languages who are interested in that topic. So it's a platform for creating a community of practice or community of interest. And such platforms already exist. There are many platforms like that. But they don't really tackle um, multilingualism at all. None of them do. Mm. Um, if you know anything about building communities, online communities, one of the tools that you need to offer a community is um, a really high-performance library a place to put useful resources. So, you know, you might be in, um, give me a topic, um, it could be butterfly connecting or, or whatever. Um, people will, if they see something that is useful to the community, they like to share it. And so they put mm. it into the resource library. But they'll be putting it into the resource library of the community in the native language. So a German butterfly lover, you know, sees an interesting article about, I don't know, the use of pesticides and the impact on butterfly uh, populations, mm. and it's in German. So he puts it into the library, and at the moment only German speakers can, can see that, right? Um, but if we, we're going to build this tool so that it's machine translated automatically into the other languages using a multilingual taxonomy so that if you're a, a butterfly lover interested in pesticides from France you'll actually see this article because you've navigated the community using you know, your French taxonomy and you find a French translation of this German article. And then you can improve that translation if you see that there's problems with it and that will actually train the machine translation engine which is underlying it. Hmm. So uh, it starts with what you call a plain vanilla machine translation engine which is good at translating everything to a reasonably good degree, you know, maybe if you give it a score, maybe 60 or 70% accuracy. Mm. But then the community which is using it improves it. And it's actually based on a, a very old project called Blogging Portal, which um, is dead now, unfortunately. But it's not just a question of people submitting individual items of content into the platform. What you do is um, you you attach your, you basically take feeds from content sources. So you're interested in, I don't know, for example, butterfly collecting. Butterflies, yeah. Yeah, maybe in France there's a there's a, a website uh, about butterflies, and in Germany there's a website about butterflies, and in Italy there's a website about butterflies, and they've all got RSS feeds. So you just feed those websites into the platform, and every time there's a new piece of content from one of those sources. Um, it goes into the system and it's automatically classified for you. So you don't have to, the members of the community don't actually have to curate every single piece of content. They just curate the sources. You know, what, where are good sources of content relevant to our interest? And then the machine will analyze it, uh, classify it according to a, a high performance uh, taxonomy using semantic analysis and do machine translations around it. And then the humans who have, you know, basically done the source curation can then identify the highest quality content. They can say, oh, that, that particular article is really good. And so basically this was the, the blogging portal model which looked at, which curated over a thousand sources about EU policy. But it all had to be done manually. And mm. um, people gave up after a while because they, they got PhDs. They, they finished their PhDs. They got married, had kids, got jobs, and, and they walked away. <laughs> so, you know, we really have to make the machines do as much as possible and leave the humans to do the most important things, which is identifying the sources which should be curated for the community to begin with, and then identifying the individual pieces of content which are exceptionally good. And then, in addition, correcting the translations if they want to, um, because they know that if they do, they will actually improve the translation engine. 
and should this be successful, each community will create the best machine translation engine for their community. And as a whole, the overall machine translation engine underlying this uh, tool will get better. And so will the semantic analysis engine as well, because you know, semantic analysis works, uh, it, it reads the article and it figures out what the article is about. It automatically tags it. And mm -hmm. it makes mistakes. You know, it will make mistakes. And if the, all, all the human has to do is say, that's a good article, but it's not about pesticides. That's a mistake. And he just deletes that tag. Um, the semantic analysis engine will learn from that. And so it's a way of um, harnessing the power of online communities to crowdsource the improvement, the training of machine translation and semantic analysis. It sounds like a bit of a mouthful. It's a lot easier when I have a PowerPoint presentation to explain all of that. Um, yeah. But uh, trust me, it's going to rock. <laughs> <laughs> well, I must say, personally, I find it extremely fascinating and, and a very, very interesting uh, project. Um, so you, you mentioned your bios challenge, and then you said that you, the Eurective project, the official one, uh, so to speak, um, is a bit more... Uh, advanced or, or has a different focus so maybe uh, elaborate a little bit on that yeah this is a really interesting project too actually um it's far more advanced than my my project is just an idea with some wireframes attached to it but um this is something that they've actually been piloting for well almost since they began but very recently they've actually been testing the the commission's own machine translation tool as well as a, a private company's machine translation tool a company called tilda they're from latvia mm -hmm, and yeah. um yeah, it's it's actually a very interesting idea. And originally, it was this is something which the Euractive Network, because they've got franchises across Europe, you, you know, something that they could do internally, and they've been testing it internally. But now they actually want to turn it into a a platform which other media could join. And essentially, what it is, it's going to set up itself as a a sort of an alternative for a small number of media, not everybody will join, uh, a small number of media, uh, an alternative to, or a better alternative really, to press agencies. You know Reuters, mm. AFP, AP, yeah. they currently, um, a lot of media are reproducing, republishing content from those three press agencies, which really means oh, yeah. it's a great loss of diversity. Instead of having, you know, different media interpreting the news in their own way. They're all just republishing one piece of content written by Reuters. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, all, all credit to Reuters. I mean, they're a multi-billion euro company, and that's, nobody's going to take that away. But the thing is that if you're a French news magazine, you know, you, you don't want another French news magazine to take your content. That's copyright theft. You don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. But if a German magazine took your article, translated into German and published it, you would mind a lot less. And you wouldn't just sure. give it away, but if you were on a platform where you could take their content from German and have it machine translated and you could publish it in French, you would increase the amount of content that you're producing. You would increase the width and the depth of your coverage at, at a very, very cost-effective rate. All it requires is a platform which links together the media's content management systems with the machine translation engine. And again, mm. a machine translation engine where the machine translation is presented to a journalist and they then, or a translator then, corrects the machine translation and localizes lots of other things. Mm -hmm. And the platform learns from those corrections. So the, again, we have, we'll have a platform where there's a bunch of news media sharing content across language borders and in the process, training the machine translation engine so it gets better over time. 
And this is actually pretty neat because media is, as I mentioned before, under an enormous amount of business pressure. The business media, the, the business model of media is broken. There, a lot of media are going out of business. They're more and more using press agencies. And this is a way of both helping media, um, you know, in, improve their cost-effectiveness, improve their competitiveness, improve their revenues. But it also means that national media across Europe will include more content from other national media. So you'll have, you know, French media reporting more about how the same issue is covered in Germany, Italy, Portugal, France, uh, Spain. And, you know, which brings us back to what we were talking at the beginning about how there's, there's a lack of this European public sphere. And so it sort of kills two birds with one stone. And the technologies are there. You know, the machine, we've been testing it here, the machine translation, at least part of it. Uh, we'll also need semantic analysis and auto text summary. So we need a combination of technologies. But they all exist. They're all on the market sure. now. Yeah. It's just a question of combining them together and integrating them into the content management systems of news media, which isn't as hard as it sounds because you just use APIs, uh, application programming interfaces. Half the media of the world all use WordPress, you know. So <laughs> yeah. it's not that hard. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think this is going to be a really interesting um, project. It's, as I said, UACTA has been testing this for a while. We, uh, we had a workshop on it at Future Media Lab back in January, and that was very interesting. It gave us some more input and some more sort of constraints to, to meet and so forth. Um, but we've got a model now, and um, we're going to be discussing this at LT Innovate. Well, I won't be, it'll be my colleagues. Uh, and we are going to be opening it up. Uh, we would like other European media to join us on this journey and creating a platform which will benefit us all. And in fact, it will help benefit Europe too. And I think it should be quite interesting, especially for the small and medium-sized media, let's say, that don't have, a, a, you know, a, a lot of infrastructure for that kind of thing, because uh, it would give them a way to extend their exposure, you know, get get known more widely and sort of leave the uh, national market, maybe find uh, new markets. It's certainly very useful for any, whenever any media um, gets a piece republished somewhere else with credit, obviously, you hope, um, you know, it's a big deal. It's It's always a bit a bit of a victory. And so this is a way of um, helping media, you know, reach beyond their, their national, um, their national borders. Uh, and it's also a way of, of ideas crossing national borders, which is extremely important. Um, and, uh, you know, but in the end, it really is a question of helping media, um, you know, improve the coverage uh, of European issues or of all issues, in fact, in a cost effective way, because, um, I don't know how much you know about what's going on in America, but um, you know the the number of um, newspapers and uh, that have gone out of business, the number of journalists who've been let go is, is horrifying. And yeah, uh, it goes down with increasing speed. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's terrible. It's it's really bad. It's a big problem. Um, it's a big problem for democracy. And um, at a time where Europe has got its own problems, you know, it doesn't need. You know, Europe does not need independent media to also die. Because it will, that will not help. Uh, Definitely, no. <laughs> so it really is. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a tangled web. It's a tangled set of problems. But uh, this particular set of solutions, as I said at the beginning, there's no one solution to the problem of Europe. But this is just one partial solution to one of the many problems. Um, and I actually think it's, um, uh, it, it's got great potential. And it's also awesomely cool technology. I mean, it really is. It very is right. Nice, you know. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's, it's technically it has become so easy to sort of 
take different bits and pieces and and put them together sort of uh, in an automated way, I guess. You know, uh, it started with RSS news feeds, but increasingly also APIs. As you said, it becomes much easier to sort of tie things together. And then the only thing, I think the only thing that stands in the way then is is, is backwards idea of copyright and, um, you know, the, the ideas that float around about um, this ancillary copyright for news publishers. So that could that could maybe be an issue. I don't know. Oh, of course, it's absolutely one of the issues. But what you have to remember that is if, if you're a, um, as I said before, if you're a French media, you know, if you join this platform, you join this platform because there are no other French media on the platform addressing the same audience as you. Yeah. So you, you share your content into this platform. You choose which articles you share. And knowing that the only media who are going to pick it up and use it, they're going to be using a German translation, a Portuguese translation, an English translation, and so on. And they will respect your copyright, which is a shared copyright model. So there'll be a link back to you and so on. But hmm. they're not actually taking anything away from you because they're addressing audiences in Germany, in Portugal, in Spain, and who are not interested in reading your article in French on your French newspaper. So, exactly. um, so that is the key issue here. The thing is that, you know, at the moment you've got a, a tiny handful of, um, of press agencies, two English, one uh, French, who are pumping out content that everybody uses. But there's a whole bunch of mm. syndica syndication-ready yeah. content that is hidden behind these language barriers. And we're just going to drill a hole in that barrier and, um, and let media... Uh, that participating media who who reach the same quality threshold and uh, respect each other's copyright, we're going to yeah. let those media, you know, tap that content, and it's going to it's going to it's going to enrich them. It's going to help them save you know save their business model, and it's also going to enrich the the coverage of uh, of issues in the media. It's, it's a lot better than everybody publishing the same article from Reuters. Which is what happens, I mean, today, happens, basically, yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe not necessarily for the podcast, but just out of curiosity. Um, the, the idea behind the platform, is it also to provide a mechanism for, I don't know, payment, licensing, or is it mainly about the technical things and the multilingual uh, aspect at the moment? Well, the idea is, you know, when you, when you want to do something like this, what you want to do is um, build a system which will be commercially sustainable. Hmm. Sure. So, you know, it, somebody has to manage, the, somebody has to build the platform, somebody has to manage the platform. And so we, 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 uh, we've got a business model for that now. This is what we've been working on the last few months. And uh, the idea would be that people, media who, are, who join this platform, they pay a fee, a yearly fee uh, to have access to it, just as they pay a yearly or a monthly fee to Reuters AP and AFP as well. Yeah, a subscription. Yeah, yeah, it's a subscription model. It's a, it will be it will be a service, um, uh, software as a service, or actually a content service um, uh, that's piped directly into your CMS. You know, the idea is that you're a journalist in one of these media and you start writing about an article. The first thing you do is you put a few keywords into your CMS, and it automatically finds you articles mm. on that topic written by other media on the platform, and you can mine them. You can republish them or use the content in there in your own content to make your content better. So it's allowing media to, to, do, to pull their journalistic research as well. And what that will allow is that will allow different media to specialize a bit more because at the moment everybody writes the same 500 to 800 word article every day yeah, about exactly. Ben Holland and Merkel. But if, 
you know, if you're in this club, maybe you can republish somebody else's 500-word article, which just basically gives you the, you know, gives you the, the breakdown of what happened when Holland met Merkel, and then you spend your time writing something a bit more original, a different, a different slant on it. And yeah. other, it other members of the media will pick that up and use that. So you get more diversity of, um, of journalism, uh, diversity of voice, um, and greater creativity and perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Extremely interesting times we live in. Crazy times, but very interesting. Yeah, we do, don't we? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'll just ask one final devil's advocate question. Um, question. Do you think people will embrace that or will most people just say, ah, English enough is fine. Why bother? And I would hate that to happen. It's, it's, it's a purely devil's advocate question. Well, I, I, I can only agree with you that I would hate it to happen. And I'm working on projects like this because I want to, I want to allow at least an alternative to exist. And I think the answer is that many people, sure, many people will say, I understand English, so I don't need this. But then they're missing out on so much content. You know, we, I mentioned before the Blog and Portal project, which was the, the source of all the ideas here. You know, this was a, uh, an informal bunch of people who were collectively known as Euro bloggers, people who were blogging about the EU. And they mm. said, wouldn't it be great if we could find all of our stuff, you know? And so um, some people built this engine to basically create this content. And in the end, we were, it was, um, it was curating over a thousand sources of content. And the, in the database, there's over 320,000 individual pieces of content, some, most of which have been tagged manually, or maybe half have been tagged manually. But mm. what's really interesting is the language profile. Um, I, think, I think it's like, oh, I've written a blog post about this, but it was years ago. I did an analysis. But there are over 20 languages covered there. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, quantity is not everything. Quality is important too. And as I said before, Somebody writing in Latvian or Hungarian may tackle the same problem from a different, in a different way simply because they grew up Hungarian and, and the language means they tackle, you know, they, they look at a problem in a different way. But that, that, that insight, that perspective on that problem is hidden to everybody who doesn't understand Hungarian. And you, if you say, oh, English is, is enough, what you're saying is, Knowing English, there's enough content for me to read 24-7, which is true. Precisely, yes. But it doesn't mean that you're reading the best content. It just means that you've got enough content to get through, and the idea of being given even more content to read is just, oh, forget it. I don't have the time to read what there is now. But just because you're reading stuff in English doesn't mean you're reading the best stuff there is to offer on a topic. And That's I, exactly right, yeah. Yeah, it, it is. And I mentioned Hungarian in particular. Hungary is a really interesting um, place. Um, I've actually met a, I've, I've actually met quite a few Hungarian people, and they do seem to be quite creative. And I'm wondering whether that's a, ling- a linguistic, a function of culture or language. But I don't really think you can separate the two. And I really would hate that to be lost, and everybody just to start talking in English, because I think mm. we, I think Europe would lose um, the the potential of being more innovative that we currently have. And if we don't have that potential, uh, we'll regret it one day. Because the technology will get there eventually. We just need to give it a push. I think there's not much to be added there. <laughs> <laughs>
You've been listening to episode 21 of LangFM, an interview podcast where I meet guests at the intersection of language and technology. My guest this time, European communication strategist Matthew Lowry. You can find Matthew on Twitter as at Matthew Lowry with only one T and many other places around the web. Also, you should really go to www.langfm.audio and check out the show notes for this episode for additional information and loads of interesting links. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, why not subscribe, leave me a review on iTunes or share it with your friends. Thank you. Thank you.